Previously on American Thought Leaders. No matter what shows up, there's treatment. There is a way to mitigate damage in every disease. In part one of my interview with Dr. Richard Urso, a co-founder of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, he breaks down alarming post-booster trends he's seen and how usual protocols for identifying treatments were thrown out during this pandemic. Now in part two. Basically, they took almost the exact same drug as Kaletra. They dressed it up, they put a box around it, and they're selling it for, what, $5 billion? Big pharmaceutical companies can make billions by essentially repackaging existing products, Dr. Urso says. We have seen the ultimate demise of our healthcare system when it's in the hands of bureaucrats. Dr. Urso says he's now working with other prominent doctors to create both a national telehealth system as well as an entirely new infrastructure of doctor-led medicine where power is decentralized and less easily corrupted. Once doctors became employees during this pandemic, it made them very reluctant to speak out for various reasons. Dr. Urso is a drug design and treatment specialist, an ophthalmologist, and former chief of orbital oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanni Kellek. I remember um, at this hearing, the most recent hearing that Senator Ron Johnson held, I remember something that you said, and you said something like, the message I want to send is that we have the treatment. It's the message I want everybody to hear. We can beat this disease. You know, to basically to everybody. And so, you know, what is that, what are the known treatments, broadly speaking? And I also understand there's this element of trying to get at it as early as possible, right? And that's helpful. So if you could kind of just paint that picture for me so people can understand. Let's start from kind of the early treatment of the person who is acutely ill. There is basically a sequential multidrug cocktail, part of a paper that we wrote with Peter McCullough. And, and we use a lot of different products. We use things for inflammation. We use things for breathing. We use things for blood clotting. And so some of the drugs would be, you know, some of them are hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, prednisone. Okay, those are... Those are all crucial drugs. We've had a lot of success without ivermectin, without hydroxychloroquine. It's hard to have success without any prednisone. It's really important because the inflammation can be quelled with prednisone. Um, then we've gone really strong towards mast cell stabilizers. That Everyone knows those. Those are drugs that are like H1, H2 blockers. So all the things we use for you know, drying up our nose during, during the season, Claritin and things like that. We don't use Claritin, we use stronger ones. I use one called Ciproheptidine because it not only blocks the H1 blockers, but it blocks the serotonins, which are in high, high manufacturing in megalocaricytes, which are made in the lungs. So if they start dumping their serotonins, it creates this huge um, inflammatory response. So you want to stabilize the mast cells, you want to stabilize these serotonins, we use Pepsid as a drug a lot of people know for, for stomach. It's an H2 blocker. We use um, a Singular. Uh, this is another drug used for asthma. Turns out that almost every one of these drugs, not only that, has a small viral mechanism. Some are blocked, the, what's called the main protease, the 3CL main protease. The best one being, uh, the best of that is called ivermectin. But um, uh, uh, Pepsid does that. Um, so does, uh, in a small way, so does uh, Singular. Um, and there are several other drugs that can also do that. We also use phenofibrate, which is a cholesterol drug. We could use uh, cyclosporin, which is used for a transplant drug. There's um, the Jake inhibitors. They can be used. They, they, they quell the inflammatory response. So the list goes on and on on the acute side. And then as we get into it, and people have what's called long COVID, I'm starting to see, even at two and three weeks now, that people are showing viral reactivation. And this is relatively new for me to find this out. So I'm, I'm having people calling me say, hey, I'm dragging. I was, I was kind of getting better, but now I'm kind of dragging. Like, um, it's the third week, I'm 21 days out. I thought I was going to get better. It's, it turns out their, their Hepstein-Barr is up, and I'm seeing that. And I'm seeing it six months later mm. and nine months later. Mm -hmm. So those are treatments which you just asked. We do different things. So if I have viral reactivation, we use Valtrex because they work good against the herpes virus family. And then we use lysine because it's kind of a one of those nutritionals that's good against the herpes virus family. 
the ratio of lysine to arginine seems to impact the ability of these viruses to replicate. This data goes all the way back to the 1970s. Mm. Um, people used to say herpes is forever, and it really is. It just lays dormant in the body. And then we're using vitamin D. I tell people vitamin D is your data analyst. It allows the immune system to make good decisions. And I, I say without vitamin D, our immune system may attack pollen, but not attack a pathogen. And when vitamin D is around, your, your immune system can recognize, oh, this is pollen, let's leave it alone. Let's attack this pathogen. Let's attack this cancer cell. Let's leave my knee alone. So it makes better decisions when you have good levels of vitamin D. And so those are probably the three main things. And I just want to touch on vitamin D a little bit, because I still think this isn't generally known. I mean, vitamin D is just a good thing to have in the body uh, for dealing with viruses, period, right? So my favorite vitamin since about 1995 has been vitamin D. Uh, and it basically became something I became incredibly aware of early on when I was at the cancer hospital doing the work of that. All these patients with cancer, especially these young women with breast cancer, 31 years old, they were all incredibly deficient. And there was a study showing that had an impact on flu. And I can't remember where the study, but it was a kind of a little known study, just like, hey, that sounds kind of neat. And then I saw that it had some impact on a tumor recognition protein. And I was like, Hmm. That sounds impressive. So let me let me start checking my patients' vitamin D levels. And it was virtually 100%, maybe it wasn't 100, I'm sure, but virtually 100% of the patients were vitamin D deficient with cancer. Colon cancer particularly became quite aware of it. A lot of these things would metastasize to the orbit and I had uh, to the eye socket, so I would have to deal with it. Uh, pancreatic islet cell carcinoma. I think I had the whole world's population of that saw seven cases. The world literature had like two cases ever. But that's what happens when you work at the top cancer hospital in the world. And, and I found out that it was impactful. Um, and so I started recommending it to all the patients. Shockingly, my patients came back and said, hey, you cured my allergies. And I was like, what? How? How did I cure your allergies? They're like, well, ever since I've been taking that vitamin D, you know, my allergies are gone. And I was like, really? I got one of my kids that I don't think is ever going to get a boyfriend because she keeps snots running down her face all the time. So I was like, so I, <laughs> I tested her. Sure enough, her vitamin D was really low and put her on the vitamin D. And I figured out a whole, re a whole remedy for it. Basically, for every 32 pounds, I'd start give 1,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. So somebody says, hey, it's my four-year-old kid today came in today. Um, this one woman came in. Um, was her child that had all these viral lesions around, around the eye that they want me to burn off, which I will. Um, and I said, his vitamin D is probably low. Um, we're going to check that. But bottom line is, I know if her vitamin D status is better, a lot of these things won't happen. But it's amazing for allergies. It's amazing for prevention uh, and resistance against cancer, particularly like lymphomas and breast cancer and colon. I mean, it has a huge impact, even little skin tags. If, people, if you see somebody with a, tons of little skin tags around here, uh, first of all, they have chronic irritation. But second of all, almost all of those people with allergies that you know have incredibly low vitamin D levels. And it's missed over and over and over again. And I literally sometimes get people in here, I go, look, I know you came here for your eyes, but I'm going to cure your allergies. So, and, it, and my patients are used to it because they know, they know I do bone work. So they'll come in and say, hey, my, my my, my foot won't, won't heal, and I'm like, you need vitamin K2. They go, what about calcium? I go, do you need to bring sand to the beach? They're like, no. I go, you don't need it. Take vitamin K2. They go, what else do I need to know, Dr. Urso? I go, you're a 70-year-old woman, and you're on a statin, and I'm just going to tell you right now, women with higher cholesterol outlive women with lower cholesterol. So my whole practice encompasses like health in general. And I've been doing it the whole time. By the way, if anybody's interested, it starts with the HUNT2 study. Um, but bottom line, there's a lot of misinformation in medicine, and I'm always learning myself. But I just told you a whole bunch of important things that, that basically, if anybody listens to what I just said, they, they're gonna improve their chances if they take vitamin K2. The best epidemiology we have is 50% uh, improvements against stroke and heart attack, 83% improvement in bone fracture risk. 
Um, vitamin D, probably somewhere between a 30 to 40 percent uh, decreased chance for cancer. And if you do those two things, you're doing wonderful. So if you take anything away from this interview, take that. Well, and, and apparently it's really helpful to prevent you from getting COVID, right? I mean, that, that's what I've been told. It makes you better looking too. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about drugs mostly before we took this little detour into vitamin D, which is frankly absolutely fascinating to me. There's this drug called Paxlovid, which um, the, the current administration has invested very heavily, and I understand to the tune of something like $5 billion, like trying to fathom that actually. But I've got this tweet from Vinay Prasad from a few days ago, and he says, I keep asking, has anyone seen trial data for Paxlovid in people who have already been vaccinated? And so the, the subtweet here is simply that the Biden administration is on the hook to pay Pfizer nearly $5 billion for pills it's already old ordered, meaning that as much as half of a scaled-back pandemic funding bill the Senate is debating is already spoken for. I don't know the outcome of that bill yet. Well, I guess we'll know by the time we air the episode. So if you don't mind, I want, to, I want to talk about this, but I want to broaden it a little bit. So they took a drug. You know, when I, I started doing, I told you about earlier about the vitamins, and somebody came to me, and he said, hey, you should do the industry. I said, I already do. I said, I, I'm making products for Major League Baseball teams, NBA teams, and uh, some U.S. ski teams. I said, I do this as, like in my sleep. It's not hard. And uh, I, I think I have a lot of fun doing the biochemical side of things. And he said, yeah, but you need to get in the marketing and you need to, if you sell something, you should put it in a box, you can sell it for double the price. And I said, but it's the same product. It doesn't, I, I, I tell you, that's why I don't, I said, that's why I don't do it because that would make me feel bad. And I said, I, maybe I shouldn't feel bad, but I would. And I said, at the same time, I, I, I wouldn't feel that bad if I was doing something good for people. Um, and so I, I bring this up because at the beginning of the pandemic, when remdesivir first came out, I'll bring it around to Paxlovid, but, but this, is a, this is important. People ask me, why am I speaking out? And I said, well, I'm speaking out because I have to. There is treatment and people do not have to die. We can save almost everyone. At 90% we can save. Some people don't come in that early. Uh, and so once you get into later stages, it's hard to bring somebody around. But if you get everybody early, we literally can save almost everybody early. And I said, and if remdesivir was amazing and people, it cost people three grand, I would say, well, I'm sorry, I, don't I, I can't, you're gonna have to pay the three grand. I'm not gonna go fighting for everything I have, for everything I own, every part of my body, my family, everybody can be totally destroyed by me speaking out. And I said, I'm not gonna take the world on the industry on, let's, let's put the, not the world, because a lot of people were with me, but when I saw the fact that these people were gonna die and remdesivir was gonna hasten their death because the virus doesn't replicate past day five and they're given this drug at day 15 and 20, I just felt like I've gotta speak out. I, I have to speak out. Like I, I, I literally told my wife, I said, I, I have to do this. I literally can't sit here and watch people die. It's, not, it's wrong. And I go, if something happens to me, for doing the right thing. This is so wrong, I have to do it. And this is where I want to come around to Paxlovid because Paxlovid is a fairly toxic product. This drug is a protease inhibitor. These things have been developed since the 80s, basically. They've been used frequently in HIV drugs. They basically chop the virus up into small parts so that it can be reassembled into something nice. So basically you can think of it as like a sheet and they chop it up and now you've built a gingerbread house and you need this, uh, this main protease to do that. And, and in fact, for everybody here, the best protease inhibitor on the planet Earth happens to be ivermectin, but that's another story. But these protease inhibitors are, have been very successfully uh, marketed in the HIV market. They ha we have them. They never tested one in this pandemic in the early phase. They tested them in the late phase and so do you think a drug that's gonna affect viral replication would work in the late phase when the virus is no longer replicating? People don't die from the virus. They die from the viral particles in day seven, eight, nine, 10, 20. They don't die from the cars. They die from the car parts. They, they, the virus isn't killing anybody. The virus is creating a pathway to inflammation. And the pathway to inflammation um, depends a little bit on the amount of virus. 
but the virus is no longer surviving when the inflammation is occurring. The inflammatory pathway is set off on like a domino effect and the main dominoes don't fall until you hit about day eight, nine, or 10. So why would they not test any other protease inhibitor? We have plenty of them on the market until you know day 15, day 20. They didn't, they never tested them. So these drugs, which we already have available, were never tried. None of us tried them because we had better ones, safer ones, less toxic, less chemically destructive drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and steroids, all right? So we didn't use them on purpose because we had better, the repurposed drugs that we chose were much safer. We could have used Kaletra, and in all likelihood it would have worked, but it's kind of toxic. So we didn't want to use it. And if you want to look at the toxicity of these, anybody can look it up online. Toxicity of protease inhibitors, the list will be this long. There are 32 classes of drugs that it interacts poorly with, 32 classes. Not 32 drugs, 32 classes of drugs, right? So anybody who gets on Paxlovid needs to be off everything else. The problem you have is that you only need it for about five days or so, so it can be useful. So I'll tell you, Paxlovid kills viruses. It kills mitochondria, which are important to us. Viruses don't have mitochondria. It kills cancer cells, that's kind of cool. It also kills our normal cells. If you have a cell replicating, it's, it's for the most part killing it. Same thing with remdesivir and molnupiravir. They have slightly different mechanisms. One's affecting molnupiravir and remdesivir is affecting the RDRP, which is like the copy machine, and they make mutations in the copies, which might make a mutation that's more aggressive. 99.999% of mutations are gonna end up in the garbage. 0.0001 is going to be a basically super virus, potentially. That's what they did with Molnupiravir and Remdesivir and Paxlovid, this protease inhibitor. So they took this, put it in a nice box. Basically, they took almost the exact same drug as Kaletra, exact same drug as Kaletra, dressed it up, they put a box around it, and they're selling it for, what, $5 billion? It's absurd. This is why we have the corruption we, that is now very apparent to me. These drugs are already there. So anybody here, these are not new. None of these drugs that they invented are unique. They just- and You're just talking here about remdesivir, about the- all, Almost all, all the That's the one drugs, that we hear about the most, right? Almost yeah. all the drugs that the pharmaceutical company, if you look at 10 drugs, the last 10 drugs that have come out and been approved, eight of them have nothing unique about them at all. They're just, they do this over and over and over again. I mean, it's, it's probably more like one out of 20 that actually may be a little unique, maybe even less than that. They're almost always like, oh, we're gonna take this drug and go from two, two times a day to one time a day. We're gonna take this drug, we'll change the esterification right here, doesn't matter, um, and we'll use it for you know, the same exact disease. We'll say the other, disease, the other drug is dr black box, like a drug like droperidol, which used to be great for nausea and for a little sedation after surgery. As Soon as they came up with, the better, with better drugs, they decided to get that in the black box category. There's so much little corruption in the past when there was little things like that. I pretty much, it's too big of a, it's too big to try to tackle. But seeing people dying was, was too much for many of us and it was, it, that's why a lot of us have spoken up. I've never spoken up about vaccines. I've never, never spoken up about a lot of these little things that I saw. But if, it, if you're gonna start killing people with your policies, and killing people in a massive way, I, I had to speak up. That's, that was, that's, that's what the impetus of the whole thing was. Not to be right. I wish I could go, I wish I can go away. I'm doing very well. So I don't need, I don't need anybody's help financially. You know, I was doing quite well, so. And just to be clear, you know, you're saying, you know, killing people effectively, it's by, I think you're, you, the mechanism of this is by just sort of withholding the ability to provide Bad early policy treatment. Decisions. Right. Complete, completely bad policy decision. Mm -hmm. The policies that are basically making it almost impossible to treat patients without um, having some kind of uh, repercussions. We should you know, be able to get these uh, supply chain sides fixed. Um, so in general, like if I try to treat somebody, I get reported to the boards. Um, who knows who reported me? It's anonymous. Hey, she's using ivermectin. She's using hydroxychloroquine. 
So I've gone away. I use, I use, I won't tell them what I use because they use it and they don't know and it works. So I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to keep doing it. Most of the people who work with me know what those things are. But I can cure everybody almost without hydroxychloroquine and without ivermectin, period. And I'll leave it to your audience to try to figure it out. So I don't feel like getting attacked. But every single doctor that is willing to treat knows those things. They may decide whether or not they want to do it their way and use ivermectin hydroxychloroquine, but I've made it quite plain to many, and there's probably about four or 500 doctors that I would share that information with. They've shared that, that information of how they've been successful with me. So it's not a one-way street. We are, we are sharing together. It's a small crew, and we're willing to share with the world, and I, and, and I, and I have, but right now I have the formulas that are working well, and I'll, and I decided I don't want to put it out there because I don't want to. One of the drugs actually, for the first time in history, it's a 90-year-old drug, I had to get a prior approval for. And I think they're quite aware. They're starting to figure out what we're using. You're suggesting in order to stop you almost, right? Is that right? They just make it hard. Like mm -hmm. what happens, like you're going to have a drug that doesn't cost anything, right? And they're saying, well, what is it for? Well, it's none of your business. I think it works. In a sense, I have biologically plausible mechanism. I have a track record that I know is based in science and data. And when you come to me with stuff that is your opinion, I'm not interested. And when you have somebody standing in front of you who can't breathe, who doesn't want to die, I especially don't want to hear it. So it's very frustrating to be in this predicament where we're trying to help and trying to treat patients and we can't. The numbers are so far down right now, I mean, it's, we're not feeling that pressure. What we're feeling pressure is in the, in the future, what I feel pressure right now is they have decided to use this lipid nanoparticle platform to get multiple vaccines in people for flu, for RSV, and it's a terrible platform. And so I've decided I have a platform now and I'm gonna use my platform to tell people they're making another mistake. They wouldn't let us treat. We've basically overcome COVID. There will be another pandemic, right? There will be some epidemic of some sort, right? It's normal. It's, you know, it's life. We're going to have, you know, pestilence, famine, wars, right? I don't think all those will go away. So let's assume it's going to happen again. I know that there's going to be treatment. There's going to be effective therapies for any disorder that comes up. Now, some will be more so than less, right? And that's up to people who practice medicine. The other thing is we've never, ever listen to the CDC, the NIH, or the FDA. I've, always, I've been involved, I've, been, I've had a license for 33 years. I've never even thought to call the NIH, the CDC, or the FDA. And there's a reason, because they don't practice medicine. And I mean that sincerely, I sincerely mean that. There are a lot of people who dedicate their whole lives to practicing medicine and coming up with new therapies. They're a safety organization, a tracking data organization, and a research organization, right? So. They are not a treatment organization. They never have been. They were never designed that way. And I don't mean it disrespectfully. I mean it respectfully. They've earned, the, they've earned their disrespect, but I'm not disrespecting them when I say this. So when I talk about the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA, I'm very disappointed. And I would never say, as much as there was like enough little stuff that I would have said the, a couple of years ago, I'm shocked to be able to say this two years later that I'm extremely disappointed. There is corruption there, and it's quite obvious. So, And it's killing people. You're looking at trying to, I guess, you know, democratize the way this research is done, the way doctors work together, right? You, you seem to be concerned about the centralization of, of decision-making for doctors in general, right? And you're saying that there's this corruption. Explain to me what, you're, what you want to accomplish here. So let me rephrase what I said about corruption. What I'm saying is the, the, the influences, the monetary influences of those places are backwards. So I, without getting too far into it, I, want to, I just want to add that caveat. Not every, I mean, I have friends at all three organizations. They are not corrupt to their bone, all right, to their core, all right? But the political influences are corrupt the financial influences are corrupt. The drug companies are controlling the, the purse strings. So it's really, you know, it's, it, that's the problem, first of all. There are entities that are, are basically reliant upon the pharmaceutical industry to function. 
So they have a big part of their budgets come from them. And so that makes a big difference in how it influences. It's like the cat watch, you know, the cat watch in the hen house or whatever they say. So that's part of the problem, all right? It's not that these people are inherently corrupt. It's just that's corrupt for anybody, right? If you, if I say to you, I'm going to put, you know, two um, women scantily clad in your bed with you every night, right? But and you tell me, but I'm, I don't care. I'm not going to do anything. But that is a little bit disruptive, right? That's disruptive. They are also, in a sense, controlling people through the patent process and also controlling through the job process. If you leave as the, as the administrator of the CDC, you will likely end up on a drug company board. All you have to do is follow the trail. You'll see it over and over and over again. And, and that's in, in a sor short way summary of why the relationships have actually led to, we'll call it corruption, right? It's, but it's almost expected. Are the drug companies required to provide money to these agencies, or how does that money come through? So it comes through in various ways, sometimes through research, all right? So sometimes the NIH has a big research grant, so they actually will give money to these companies to do research. They end up buying the same companies that they have, they hold the same patents, so the people, the drug companies, and the people and the agencies all hold patents. They're really like, in a sense, teams. They are teams. They are, they are literally like one now because they are working together to create this industry. Like I said, and the problem is you, you, if it's ingenious products, great, but what's happened is we're getting so many Me Too drugs. There's no reason we needed uh, the nucleoside analogs, remdesivir and molnupiravir. We already have nucleoside analogs. Could have just used those, but there's no money in that in a sense. So they didn't create an ingenious drug in this whole pandemic. Nothing ingenious has happened except for people that have figured out that nitazoxanide and ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and steroids and all these other uh, H1 blockers, H2 blockers, all these other drugs that actually make a difference and actually help us in this mitigating the damage or even sometimes helping to fight the virus itself. So all these things have, have been done outside of the industry by doctors in practice and it could have been done in the FDA, the NIH, and the CDC, but they decided not to. They decided to make sure they made a profit from it. So part of the reason of developing the group was to be a voice of public policy. That was the purpose of what the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists was, was created, to become a voice on multiple levels. One of them was to be able to speak out on public policy, which is why we had the declarations. So that was the purpose, one of the main purposes of it, is to take the place of these agencies which are which are leaving us with bad policy. So how is this going to work exactly, right? This is very interesting. You want to kind of take back policy recommendation basically, right? That's what you're that's what you're talking about. So, first of all, the system has to be broken, right? If it was perfect, we wouldn't need to fix it. And assuming that no system's perfect, it has to be almost corrupted. And that's what the problem is. The problem has been corrupt. It's been corrupted financially, primarily, through the interrelationships and the budgeting that goes to the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA. So there's so much of the money that's coming not from the federal government. And that's not how it was. When I started out, we oftentimes went and wrote grants, and we wrote grants, and there was no money tied to any drug company back in the early 80s, right? That changed through the 90s, and they became stronger and stronger and stronger and a bigger and stronger part of the budget of the FDA, the CDC, and the NIH. With that, strings are attached. Now the messaging that's coming out of there is tied in to the research that's being done at the drug companies, right? I'm not tied into any drug companies, and, and neither should public policy be tied into drug companies. So the purpose of it, this is to create a less um, corrupted, message, a message that, that goes back to the traditions of the Hippocratic Oath, goes back to the traditions of, of why we even think of medicine as a, as a grand profession. Because we're here not just to make money, we're here to heal. So it goes back to healing, it goes back to the whole roots of what, of what most of us hope that a physician embodies. And that should embody public policy. So. The purpose of the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists was to take a role to be able to say we have a large group of physicians and scientists who believe that children 
should not be vaccinated, that naturally immune should not be vaccinated, that doctors should be able to use the medications that are already approved in the way they see fit in, in concert with discussing this with their patients. So we let doctors and patients um, interact in a way that allows them to use everything, all the tools they have, instead of hampering the tools. That was the purpose of having the organization. Then you see that the censorship became so severe that it became very important to start addressing some of the problems. People are afraid to go to hospitals. People can't get medicines from their pharmacies. Their insurers are telling them, we need prior authorizations for medicines that cost $4 a year ago. They won't let them have the medication. Why? Why would you not be able to give hydroxychloroquine you know, or ivermectin or you know, some other drugs, even sometimes prednisone? So we saw things happening that didn't have to, so we have to correct those problems, right? I was unaware that the corporate practice of medicine was occurring without me actually realizing it. I came into medicine early on when doctors were like DeBakey and Cooley and a guy named Red Duke, head of trauma. They're legends and when I met them, I decided I want to come to Texas. I came to the Texas Medical Center because my brother said, hey, it's really cool. They got a whole set of, it looks like a city. And I met these very charismatic characters who lived, breathed in the hospital. They didn't, they didn't take days off. They didn't go on vacations. They, they worked and they had their lab close by and they were, they were the first heart transplant people. Um, um, they, they flew on the helicopters for trauma, you know. Um, it was amazing to watch them and I think their, their dedication and their intellect and their charisma and all this kind of drew me in. It wasn't, in a sense, a branded system like, you know, Sloan Kettering. It was, it was the personality of the physicians and their caring and the, and the interaction I had with the patients that drew me in, right? Slowly but surely through the 90s, the hospitals started gathering together and they became a bigger, stronger force, which seemed good. I had close friends, head of Methodist Hospital, a big system here, and um, the head of the system at Herman. Um, interacted with them on a regular basis. One was actually a neighbor, three doors down or so. And what happened was um, we were like, wow, it's so cool. You know, it's easier to fight these Blue Cross sometimes seem like the big behemoth here, you know, nothing, nothing bad against Blue Cross, but I mean, when somebody's big, they're powerful, and it seems like you can't fight them. It was like, oh wow, now we have these hospital systems, we're gonna be stronger, we'll be able to fight back a little bit. And so when I left the university system and went out and practiced, immediately I was like, wow, I just wanna recreate that. So we went out and set about creating this practice that um, didn't dominate each other, but we collaborated together to form the biggest practice in the country, which we thought was a wonderful thing. We made a lot of great friendships, but I didn't realize that in the hospitals, the do doctors were becoming marginalized. They became employees. Once doctors became employees during this pandemic, it made them very reluctant to speak out for various reasons. You don't want to lose your job. You got to pay your mortgage. And for the most part, they were told they might be in really big trouble in other ways, like I said earlier. You know, you're gonna wear a mask and get thrown in jail for wearing a mask, potentially. It came out, I wish I could find the document, I'll have to go back and look, but it came out from the board, do not wear this or you might be criminally liable because it's an emergency. So that, that created this problem we have now, right? People don't wanna to go to hospitals. They can't get medicines from pharmacies. They can't get information because you're censored, right? So how do we fix that? First thing is messaging. So we're fixing it. We've developed a really, we have a great infrastructure. It's already built. We partner with a, I won't say who, but we partnered with a group that's built the infrastructure already. And we are gonna have the site that's gonna basically be much better than Medscape, which is basically drug company information. Much better than what's going on on WebMD. Again, drug company information. And we're gonna populate with information that's basically not being, um, it's not gonna, we're not gonna take any money from, from those entities. Not because we don't think some of them are honorable, but we think the process itself, like we talked about before, if you lay down with dogs, you'll come up with fleas. And that's what happens. When you put yourself in, in a position 
to take money from people, you're going to have to take direction. That's, that's what happens. We know that. So we're going we're gonna to avoid that. We're going to avoid that trap. So that's one. Number two, we've got to create a national telehealth plan because we see now through COVID how powerful telehealth was. It allowed about 400 doctors, maybe three or 400 doctors in the entire country to take care of all the COVID patients outside the hospital. So if anybody was taken care of outside the hospital, it's a small group of three or 400 doctors that took care of most of them. For the most part, the, most of the doctors were so afraid that they just said, look, I don't treat COVID. So we have to go down that rabbit hole. And just super quick, how many patients were treated that way again? Do you have a sense of that? I would say that, you know, just uh, we all kind of chipped in on my free doctor. It was over, you know, that was over 100,000 that we know of. But I would say millions of millions of patients overall, uh, collectively. Um, Across just 300 or 400 doctors. I mean, some of them, I said, were... I think Stella Emanuel treated 80,000. It, it may be a million or two. I, I, it's hard to put a pure number. And I actually think about it because, you know, I'm one of them. So most of the ones who did it did anywhere from one to 4,000 individually. But a few of them had these bid networks, and there were nurse, nurse practitioners pitching in. So the extended, the extended group is bigger than that, but the physician group is smaller. And there was a lot of nurse practitioners doing those things too. Sure. So I, I just I just had to stop there because that's that's a fascinating, amazing story that I don't think has been really told yet. It's it's a great story. Um, you know, it's kind of like the three hundred or something. <laughs> so it's really a true story, actually. That's I didn't think about it, but that's what it was, and it felt that way. Okay, so I felt like this the entire time in the water. I was here for a year or so where I couldn't breathe. We slowed down now, but I literally could have barely keep my head above water. And so now you're building, you know, sort of an official telehealth network. Uh, so now COVID's kind of ended. We don't have to take care of all these COVID patients. Cause don't forget, I don't just hand you the medicine and say, here you go. No, you call me frantic. My SATs dropped down in the low eighties. What do I do? And Texting, they all have my cell phone, texting me 15 times, we're going to the hospital, we're, we're, we're panicked, we're going to the hospital. Then they get in the hospital and they're, they're trying to give us remdesivir. And I mean, it's absolutely insane the way it felt. I think anybody who went through it, it was like, that's why these things formed. But now we see we have bigger things we have to, we have to improve the messaging. We have to improve the telehealth in a way that's gonna be sustainable. My free doctor is going to be helpful, right? But how many free doctor's visits can sustain a, a mortgage payment? You have to create an organization that is going to integrate ownership. So here's the thing that I think is important. I've talked to um, investors, and, I, and my one catch is every time when I talk to private equity that we've, we've had a group of us that have looked at private equity here, I've said, um, okay, how are we going to improve care to patients? I, I know you're going to make me more efficient. I love it, appreciate it. Probably collect better than I do. But how are we going to how are we going to impact patient care? How are we going to how is that how is it going to make people healthier? How is it going to make people see better? How is that making people have less heart attacks? What are we going to do to impact patient care? And I've yet, and I don't mean disrespect to private equity, but I've never heard an answer. Right? So I, I've always felt like. Doctor-led management, doctor-led ownership is the most important fact that we've lost mm. that's got us into this. The corporate practice of medicine makes us want to be quiet because we've got to pay the bills the next day. And at the end of the day, we need doctor-centered ownership and leadership. So the step, all right, messaging, telehealth, clinics, surgery centers, hospitals, supply chain, it all has to be, you know, it has to be a net and it has to be sort of stepwise, but also has to be an inner, you know, kind of a spider's web. Fascinating. And so, you know, it's very interesting because I've been talking with all sorts of different people on this show, on American Thought Leaders, about, you know, developing parallel structures in all sorts of different areas of endeavor in American life, right? It's just in life in general, right? So it's, so it's interesting to hear that this is happening as well in the medical profession. 
to me, it's, I can imagine it in my head and see it already happening. So it's, 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 it has to happen on some level for, for the good of everyone. We have to have, in a sense, an integration of the whole system. And, 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 and unfortunately, we do have an integrated system, but it's easy to corrupt, right? So I say to the people, I'm in the National Health Service, you either, you're getting your check from one person, one entity. One entity controls all the doctors in, in Canada. One entity. That means all the doctors in Canada need to be quiet. They can't talk about COVID. They can't treat COVID. They can't do anything. That's what happens when you have one entity. One entity, you know, absolute. How long? How old is that quote? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So it's, you know, you you can't channel all the power into one organization and have that be successful. World Economic Forum is a great example of that. We can't have all the power going into one world government. It's bound to have corruption at the top level, where basically they'll say things like, you'll own nothing and like it, which, as J.P. Sears says, he'll own everything and he'll like it. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But, but that's just natural. This is human nature we're dealing with. You have to have diffuse systems and you have to have checks and balances. You can't have everything concentrated into one power and have it work, except for that one person, of course. So either it's a good cop or a bad cop. If it's a good cop, everybody's happy. It's a bad cop. You know, everybody's sad. I mean, we can't have a system that works that way. So my goal is to create a system that has lots of checks and balances, that has diffuse ownership amongst a lot of people, and it's less likely to be corrupted because it's a heck of a lot more difficult to corrupt an entire group of people individually than it is to have one individual take control of the whole group. So this is being done under the auspices of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, is that right? So that organization has brought us together. That organization has, has created uh, a lot of camaraderie. So this has created an opportunity for us to think um, about how we can create the business structures around this. And so we have um, that nonprofit, but it's not, it's not actually involved in these things that have to be, I think, corporations or PCs at the very least. So we've created um, the one group for messaging, and it is, it is a company. All right, it's an LLC. So um, in each and every one of these may be done a little differently. We may create sort of a, um, on the clinic side, it may be a franchise model. And that's what we're kind of looking at uh, because we don't really want to own it, but we, we, there's going to be some administrative costs that are going to need to be covered on the clinic side to create a structure that actually unifies, in a sense, um, the entire group in some way so that we can go and market and we can go and send a message that I think people are going to be uh, you know, excited to hear. Um, on the telehealth side, similarly, we're doing the same thing. Um, it's a little bit easier to form that structure. Um, and on the surgery center hospital side, well, I've already been involved and in, um, built three surgery centers. Um, so I know how to do that already. Uh, it's, it's really, there are many doctors who know how to do that. Um, on the hospital side, it's more complicated. And there's um, some really great uh, administrators that want to work with us to help us with that. I've been involved in three projects uh, that actually were actually hospital groups too, and it's very complex. So um, that's going to take a, a more experienced team of uh, hospital professionals to kind of make that happen. Um, the biggest, toughest thing would be the messaging, which needs the integrated um, IT side of it, which is probably, you know, you need a you know, $100 million IT side to kind of create that whole business structure um, and and that has already been done we've already made the relationship so and they're taking care of that our job is the content side so I think you know we're going to be really successful um, if we looked at it as an enterprise as a startup our goal is not to just be a startup though our goal is to make an impact on the population a percentage of the population in the United States if we captured one percent of the population it would be an incredibly successful startup right but that's not the goal. The goal is to actually impact healthcare across the nation, and uh, I think we can do it. And it's going to take more doctors being a part of this. More doctors, uh, in my mind, if I owned one percent and another million doctors owned one percent, it'd be fine with me. So we can all own, you know, that one one millionth of a percent, and I'll, I'll be happy about that. Because at the end of the day, we want to be able to deliver care in a way that goes back to what we call the Hippocratic Oath doctor-patient-centered, I think 
Um, obviously, it's going to involve nursing. It's going to involve all levels of, of health care providers that we all want to integrate into this. Well, and this is really also just going back to doctors making decisions for their patients, for the specific needs of their patients, as opposed to, you know, it's, it's been like that for a very long time. And somehow in these last few years, it really kind of shifted into this, you know, sort of prescriptions being given from on high, so to speak. So you're basically, this is going back to the older model, really, right? It, it, in a sense, it is. I think, uh, and, and, and I think if you look at some of the models um, that have been out there all across the world, you, you see that as we've gotten into the system where, you know, everyone thought, well, we're going to just do a um, national health service. Look where that's gotten us. It's been impossible to get treatment in England and Canada and New Zealand. It has turned into the exact nightmare you'd hope it wouldn't be. I'm sorry, but this, the state is, should not be the major employer of any big entity that's going to care for patients. I just, it's, not the right, it's not the right strategy. They cannot do it. It's, they're not built to do it. They are an entity. They are not a living, breathing human being. When I see my neighbor sick and I see my friend sick, I'm going to go to lengths that you would not go if you're an entity. I'm sorry. That's how it is. That's why there's so many homeless people. Because the state is, that's not the ultimate entity for, for empathy. That's not the ultimate way to deliver local care. And so it's, it's not going to be the best way to do anything. It never will be. So let's take that as the backdrop because that's what we got, that's what's being offered around the world. National Health Service. They've done horribly worldwide. And it's easy for me to say that. If I had this conversation with three years ago, I couldn't have said that. I would not have been able to say that. We would have had a nice debate. We have seen that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we're seeing it again. You put all the power in the hands of the state, and you're seeing that 900,000 people died because the state decided that we wouldn't have early treatment. The state decided that the message coming from our major agencies would be, do not treat early even when it made no sense, even when you're talking about blood clots, even when you're talking about inflammation, and even when you're talking about respiratory demise. We have so many drugs, they were actually stopping us from using steroids. So I would even sometimes, if I was standing there, I'd go, so they're safe here, right? Same drug, because I'm in the hospital. But if I move outside the door, they're unsafe. It is literally that absurd. It's the same thing. So if you look at it big picture-wise, we are doing this because we have seen the ultimate demise of our healthcare system when it's in the hands of bureaucrats. So it's really important that we do this, and I think we're going to have tremendous success because the talent pool is amazing. I won't tell you who they are because they, we've got to announce it, but it's an amazing talent pool. People will know half the names are household names. When is it going to be publicly launched? April 1st was the first day I started paying salary. we started paying salaries. Fantastic. But do you, like, there's going to be people here watching who want to know where to look for your new organization. Do not watch CNN. It's not going to be on CNN. <laughs> watch the Epoch Times and you will see it there first. Well, any final thoughts before we finish up? You know, I don't, I, I almost want to say this. Like, I don't think the audience... I think the audience probably does know, your audience knows, but the Epoch Times has been one of the only great organizations of news during this whole pandemic, of true news, really looking for the stories that are honestly digging for the stories. And, 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 and I, I just can't say enough to say thank you for what you guys have offered. And this is sincere thank you because I really don't know where we would be messaging-wise if we didn't have your organization. It Literally, there is no other national organization of news that is telling the stories in the typical way that we grew up thinking that journalism was about, trying to dig on both sides. Like, I hope that you would, in a sense, well, they're so corrupted, I don't even think you can get a story, but I would love to sort of see an FDA, CDC, NIH sort of reply, you know, in some way. 
but at the end of the day, I think the finish that we just had on the story, which was that when you put so much power into so strong of an entity, it's almost impossible for it not to get corrupted at some point. I would assume that if this organization that we developed over time, there would be ways that it would become corrupted in some way. It's natural. As, as an organization grows in power and influence, then it would in some ways become corruptible at some point. And I think it's just a natural thing that has to happen. Things build, forests grow, there's fires, they tear down, and they regrow again. And I think that's what we're facing, right? There's an undercurrent of, in a sense, evil sense of feeling that I have that that gives me some dread sometimes when we talk about um, why is this happening. I'd like to think it was more along the lines of what I just said. Things grow, they become strong and powerful, and then as the leaves fall down and there's all these things and the underbrush dries out in a fire and a little spark stomps from the smallest levels and a spark comes to tear down the massive forest and it started from a leaf. So we are a leaf that's going to tear down a forest. That's our goal. So wait a sec, you're telling me here that you actually want to burn down the system? So I would put it a little more gently. We want to recreate the system. Maybe we could find pristine lands and start a new forest. And they can have their forest and we'll have ours. Maybe everyone, this, maybe this system works for some people. To me, I think we need a new system. If we're really going to grow the system, and it really involves being kind and empathetic and loving and moving forward. I don't think the old system can do that. I've seen it with COVID. I didn't see kindness. I didn't see love. I didn't see embracing. I saw division. I saw anger. I saw things that I've never seen in medicines where doctors who were friends were no longer friends. I've never seen that before. So to me, I don't know that I'm not going to be burning down the system, but I'm going to make a hot set of coals and start a fire that I hope grows into something wonderful. And eventually, we have a beautiful new forest. All right, so I don't want to burn down the system. That's not what I do. I want to recreate. Well, Dr. Richard Urso, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you all for joining myself and Dr. Urso for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. We live in an era of censorship and disinformation, and it can be really hard to know what's true and what's false in this information climate. To get honest information and insights you can trust, join us on Epoch TV. You can sign up for your 14-day free trial at ept.ms slash freetrialyan. That's ept.ms slash freetrialjan. Mm -hmm.